what a dream. I'm going to preach the book of Romans, right? So <laughs> maybe if I live to be 120, I'll get it done. But um, so we've, we've been reviewing that. I, I want to zero in on some verses this morning, uh, verses 19, 20, 21. And uh, I, I gave a title called Hearing the Song, you know, the song of the song of our creator that is embedded in creation, the song of our creator, this is the, that all things are sacramental, that it's in him we live and move, have our being. I also thought of, I, I had one title, Killing the Sloth, but I thought some people might love sloths, so. Um, but you don't love sloth, okay, just that killing the sloth, not animals, but the sloth makes us numb to the love of God. Then I had another one, maybe the end of zombie Christianity. Okay, so we'll we'll see how far we get in that. So, all right. So uh, this year for me has been marked by something the Lord spoke to me. In January, somewhere in the middle of January, it was, uh, had been in a season of intercession, very concerned about the world, our nation, uh, the culture, and and in the middle of the night, the Lord gave me these words, awake, arise, count it all joy. No eye has seen what I've prepared, and, and my eyes, you know, are on the righteous. They're running to and fro over the face of the earth. And so that's been kind of a guiding thing for me. What's been remarkable to me as I continue on, I just see how huge it is that it's not exactly sequential, but it, it's been real good guidance for me. So I started with, the, with uh, Romans, um, and, and uh, which just a little context of that, Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. He had never been to Rome. He had met some of the people like Aquila, Priscilla, and others who he met because they were being persecuted in Rome. Then they returned with faith and and, uh, and so he's writing this, this group of believers who he, he intends uh, to visit, but he ends up right, and they live in the heart of the beast. You know, we love, I love history, I love the history of the Roman Empire. Here's the interesting thing. When Rome was a republic, it was very creative and, and all kinds of innovation. Once it became an empire, invention stopped. This is... This is always the case where you have sort of decentralized, limited government, and then you move into um, totalitarianism. And so Rome was a totalitarian state. Rome was, you know, it had a lot of benefits. They had a good road system, Pax Romana. There were no internal wars within the Roman Empire for several hundred years. And a lot of things that were a setup for the gospel. But you know what? Part of the setup was the absolute spiritual desperation of the people who lived in this empire. You know, and it was, it was held together with fear and death. You know, blood, the crucifix was used, or the cruci- <laughs> crucifix is like a, a religious symbol for us. But the, the cross, crucifixion, was used to keep people in fear. And people would not only be publicly executed, they would publicly rot. And just as a reminder, like, don't mess around with the government. Just saying. Okay, so uh, <laughs> the, we, we do not want 
to, to lose our liberty and move into some kind of um, stronger form of central government. It was never the plan. Anyway, so I don't want to get off on that track. Please help me, Holy Spirit, to stay on track. But um, <laughs> Romans 1, Paul introduces that, you know, he's a, he's a love slave of Jesus Christ and that he's set apart for the gospel of God, which concerns his son. So everything in the book of Romans is an unpacking of the, what God did in Jesus. You know, the incarnation, the, the ministry, the, the death, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are unpacked in a way that is just remarkable. When Ann and I were young Christians, um, you know, we didn't grow up, we didn't have a church background. We, we, we were evangelized by the presence of God we felt in some meetings. And, and so when we gave our lives to Jesus and told the, the leaders of this little Jesus people group, hey, you know, we're saved. They said, okay, do you have a Bible? Do you have a Bible you can read? And go, well, we have a King James Bible. I got it for Christmas when I was in the fourth grade. And and we have this little green Bible that the Jehovah's Witnesses gave to us, and, and their eyes got big, and we would read the King James, and then we would read the little green Bible to see what it meant, because we weren't, you know, we didn't know Elizabethan English that well. We probably read some Shakespeare in high school, and maybe some at college, but, the, uh, but it was a foreign language to us, and so we were happy that we could read it and go, wonder what that means, and we'd read it, and and they, they said, oh, you don't want to read that. And they gave us, which is true. <laughs> you know, it's a mistranslation, not a translation, the New World Translation. But, the, uh, the, um, but they gave us just something they had on the shelf, which was a paperback amplified New Testament. We, now, we had no idea what this meant. And then we said, well, what should we read? You know, they said, have you read anything? We said, well, we've been reading the short books. So we would go through and see the little tiny short the shorter, the better we would read it and try to come in. And they said, okay, read this. Read the Gospel of John and read the Book of Romans. And so we did, you know, and we would read it out of the King James. Then we'd read it out. This is all out loud because we're brand new Christians. And this is what we did. We loved God. We loved his presence. We loved the word of God. And we just would read it and our lives were being transformed. But it'd be funny, we'd read it in the King James. Then we would read it out of the Amplified. And we had no idea what the brackets and parentheses meant. And I mean, we actually thought in the King James that when the letters were italicized, that meant you were supposed to read it extra loud, you know? It <laughs> didn't make sense, you know? And because that's not what they're there for. But the, they're there because the translators added it because they, so that it would carry the English syntax and grammar. But the, uh, so, so here we are, we're working our way through the Gospel of John, which was profound. And we liked that because we were hungry for the mysteries of God. But we got to the book of Romans, reading the book of Romans in the Amplified Outline. It took us all summer. But, you know, I mean, God used that to sanctify us. Not that we understood everything, but just the process. He loves it. You know, when you read the Word of God, you're in communion with the eternal Word of God. So it's like, read the Word of God. And I recommend, read it out loud if you can. That's how Scripture was always read out loud in the, in the early church. So I just recommend that. It'll change your life. You just read the Bible, even if you don't understand everything. We certainly didn't understand anything. We didn't understand the context. We didn't know really who Paul was. I mean, you know, other than he's, 
he had a part of, you know, a significant portion of the New Testament, and we didn't know what the situation was, but it still spoke to us and transformed us. So here we are, we're in Romans chapter one, and we get down to, this is a key, key couple of verses in the entire, um, to understand the book, Romans 1.16, Paul said, Paul said, I wanna come to you because I wanna share, uh, you know, I just wanna share with you some spiritual gift, and I'm eager to preach the gospel in Romans. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. The gospel's for everybody. It wasn't restricted for the Jewish people, but it was for all nations and still is. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so here Paul, you know, he really expresses his purpose. He's not ashamed to preach the gospel, even though he had been stoned with stones, he had been beaten with rods, he had been shipwrecked, he had been laughed at, he had been chased out of town, he had to be smuggled out of Damascus and later Jerusalem because people were, were just, they had one goal in mind, let's kill Paul and stop this. And it, you know, so here he is after, with all the scars and all the things, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel in Rome also. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. And it brings people into total salvation. That not only are their sins forgiven, but their lives change. They become new creatures. They're, there's healing and there's deliverance and there's wisdom and there's guidance. And they become part. There's adoption, all, this is all in the gospel, all in the, what it means to be saved. And the, uh, for everyone who believes, that's the great invitation. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so, so the righteousness of God is uncovered, it's revealed. What is righteousness? It's, just, it's more than that God is perfect and he's never done anything wrong and by definition he can't do anything wrong because he's God, whatever he does is right. But the righteousness of God is his covenant faithfulness to people. It's actually his heart of mercy toward the sinners. This is the righteousness of God that exceeds any human righteousness, that he is righteous even to the unrighteous. This is the righteousness of God that he relates to us with openness and that he keeps his promises. All of this is entailed in the concept, the Jewish concept of righteousness, tzedakah, Jewish righteousness is a relational term, not a legal term. Now, it, it has legal connotations, particularly in the New Testament, but it's primarily relational. And what's so amazing is that it's God's faith that's imparted to us that brings us to salvation, but then it's that faith that lives in us that's communicated to another person, and in the communication of a testimony of the gospel, that faith opens up in the other person. It's released into that person, and God has been actually expanding the community of faith for 2,000 years. <laughs> it works, okay, the gospel, it, it changes nations and civilizations, and it still will. He's not finished yet. Okay, verse 17. Then in verse 18, there's something else that's revealed, which is the wrath of God is revealed. Now, we don't talk much about the wrath of God, and I think we should. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness 
ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now notice the wrath of God, which by the way is not like fierce anger, like he's having a fit, you know, that he's gonna take earth and throw it past Pluto or something like that. But the wrath of God is like an indignation, like I have offered them the best and they're not interested. And so he, it's as if he turns his back, like, okay, go do your thing, and then he offers it to someone who is willing. That's the wrath of God. The wrath of God is led, is, was the loving father who let the prodigal son go waste his inheritance in the pig pen. But the minute, the, I mean, before the, the prodigal son who's now w- trying to find goodness again as he's, as he's stumbling along the road rehearsing his little, his little job interview that he's gonna ask his father, could I at least be a hired hand and live in the bunkhouse? That when the father sees him, he runs to him and embraces him. This is all part of the revelation of the righteousness of God. The wrath of God is simply that he allows us to, to go our way. It's not good when he lets us go our way. It's kind of, do you understand that? Now, on top of that, the, right, the wrath of God is not toward people, it's toward all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's like he created us in his image, he created us to be righteous because we were created in the image of love and love is ultimate righteousness. And so, so that's the wrath of God, okay? But it's revealed, it's uncovered, which is amazing and it's good that we know that. It's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and of course, it's, he's not mad at the unrighteousness of polar bears or, or mountain lions. He's, uh, he's, his wrath is against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ah, so what does unrighteousness do? When, when as humans, as we don't live in righteousness, we don't live in honor, we don't live in love, we don't live in gratitude, all these things, we're not loyal to each other, all these things, it suppresses the truth, which is actually talking about a cultural shift away from reality, which that was certainly happening in Rome in the first century. And so, this is powerful stuff. It, it, the suppression of truth, it means holding down truth. Truth is, truth is nothing hidden. Truth is reality. Jesus is, is the way, the truth, and the life. He is reality. He's the way to truth. He's, he's the giver of life, all these things. But it, I mean, to understand the suppression of truth, a good verse to illustrate this is 2 Peter 3, 5, discussing people who deliberately overlook facts. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In other words, he's saying, look, it's really plain. It's right in front of you. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And Paul goes on in verse 19, it, it, see this unrighteousness, it's a, not, it's a choosing not to see. Um, Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain. It's evident to them because God has shown it to them. He's made it manifest. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived, which means intellectually understood. 
Since, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And we talked about this last time, uh, last time I spoke about this paradox that he says the invisible things are plainly seen. They are, they're being shown to anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear. You know, I mean, as an unbeliever sitting on a, on a little granite dome, big boulder at 8,000 feet in Yosemite National Park, I had an encounter with the divine nature of God with his eternal attributes in creation. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know that that meant Jesus was Lord and Savior. I didn't know any of that. I just knew like, okay, Somebody way bigger than the current riots and insanity going on in May 1969 in Berkeley, California is going on and that's like, a, that's not that big of a deal. And so it is this issue that no matter what the current rage or what people are raging about currently, it's usually temporary. And, and why, why does it happen? Because we're humans, the earth is given to us and... Uh, and God, it's the wrath of God that allows it to continue. But it's the love of God that invites us out of it. So, you know, <laughs> help me, Jesus, to not get, go down any deep rabbit holes here. Okay, but, and the disease is that in that re- suppression of truth, we lose our ability to hear the song of the creator in his creation. We lose the ability to perceive the wonder around us. Our hearts grow numb to the, that's what we become futile in our thinkings and our foolish hearts are darkened. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile. I, there, I just said it before I read it. Uh, they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals. The Greek means four-footed animals and creeping things. The Greek you could translate as reptiles. You know. So in other words, they're giving up this glory, this eternal glory, and, and choosing instead temporal things that they can control. And so the result of that is, verse 24, God gave them up in their lust. Okay, if that's what you really want, go for it. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And it, in, and the, it goes on, there's other giving ups and other results, but I, I wanna just say where we're at currently that our culture has moved away from a culture that honors and acknowledges and cries out for God. But that doesn't mean the gospel has lost any of its power. It just means that, it, that w- the culture children are growing up in today is not the same culture that I grew up in in the 1950s and some of you earlier or later, but it's shifted with the suppression of truth away from the awareness of the beauty and the goodness and the truth that was the foundation of a, of a culture that's, that's uh, being replaced by something inferior. And so we could say today that, I mean, it's true, and, and talking with the people working with youth and that they felt absence of God is a defining feature of our day. It's an amazing thing that in America you could talk to a young person and they, they don't know who Jesus is. I mean, it's just amazing. Now, I wasn't a Christian at all, but 
you know, I, I had heard Jesus loves me, this I know. I knew the Christmas story, kind of. You know, I mean, I didn't know all its implications. But I knew these things, and I knew that Easter, beyond the Easter bunny and the stuff I was interested in, vaguely, you know, was celebrated by Christians as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was in the background. And it, it wasn't just in the background, but it was visible in public squares. And so all of this has been challenged where now we have kids growing up that they're like, what? That, that, you know, I mean, I, I received a Bible for a Christmas present when I was about 10 years old, which was amazing. Not that my parents read the Bible or anything, but they just thought he needs a Bible, you know, so they gave me a Bible. Maybe somehow they were prophetic and figured I'd be preaching someday. No, they didn't. They were actually pretty upset when I became a radical Christian. But, uh, but the felt absence of God is a, is a defining feature. And, and belief in God is unwelcome, unnecessary, and unimaginable according to our current culture. God is unwelcome in the boardroom. Just try to bring up the gospel at, at Google board meeting. You know, I'm just, I'm, and I'm not picking on Google or anything, but I'm just saying that, that many businesses make decisions not based on Christian principles. Thank God for all the kingdom business people here and, and a vision to change this. But current, yes, amen. <laughs> that this will change. God is unwelcome in the bedroom. You know, the Supreme Court in the 1950s decided that what people do in their bedrooms is their own business. Before that, it wasn't their own business. It was the entire community's business because what happens in the bedroom affects future generations. See, but, in, but going after, quote, a made-up right of privacy, which is actually not in the Constitution, that then all kinds of sexual immorality were permitted. God is unwelcome in the bedroom, and he's unwelcome in the courtroom, <laughs> and he's unwelcome in the classroom, in many classrooms, not, you know, many he's not, but, and sadly, even some of our churches. So th that, why has this happened? Because, uh, you know, the predominant um, basis of knowledge in our culture, it's, the epistemology, if you want a big word, the epistemic basis of our current culture is naturalism, which declares that there's no, nothing supernatural, there's nothing sacred, nothing worthy of worship. All, you know, all there is is matter and energy, and if you can't measure it with your five senses, it's not important. I mean, that, I'm, I'm giving very broad strokes here, but, but so, the belief in God is, has become, in our culture, unnecessary to make sense of the world. Thus, we have a situation maybe 15, 20 years ago, a, a school board in Dover, Pennsylvania, which became famous all over the world, wanted to stamp inside the biology textbooks that, you know, that, this, that evolution is a theory. I mean, it wasn't like anything radical, and I mean like the, a the ACLU, who were not protecting civil liberties, uh, you know, rose up and the, the, the court case got stacked and they handpicked the judge and they, they ruled against the school board. No, you can't do that. Why? Because this naturalistic, scientistic, scientism is different than scientists, okay? So this belief that science is the only explanation for reality is a religion that is under the shift in the culture. And so God, you know, of course, we know that God is welcome. You are welcome in this place. 
You know that song we sing? And we know that we welcome God. We welcome the Holy Spirit. We welcome holy angels. We welcome saints, the crowd of witnesses. We need all these things. But, but in our culture, believing God is unnecessary. And the scientists are the new priests. Whenever there's, whenever there's something like really significant that happens, maybe on the Today Show or Good Morning America, they'll invite a scientist. Please tell us why why are the polar bears floating on icebergs in the North Atlantic? Is this a sign of that we're, it's too late to save our planet and all this stuff? And whatever the scientists say, everybody's like, ah, ah, ah. You know, and you need masks, and you don't need masks, and you need masks, and I'm not, I am not an expert on these things. I'm just saying that our culture looks to people who make their decisions based on what the eyes see, the ears hear, the hands feel, what can be measured and perceived to make significant decisions. And they don't invite, hey, we wanna have this pastor come and talk to us. We wanna have this theologian come and talk to us. Hey, what do you think about the polar bears, you know? Oh, we love them, man. Everything God made is good. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, what are we going to do about it? Well, we're, 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 there's a lot of different, you know, but I'm saying, but the, no, they don't invite, hey, we want this pastor to come. They might have you come, but usually if a pastor comes, instead of just giving you his opinion, they'll be interviewed with carefully asked questions, you know, to make sure they stay in the box. And so, or if you're a 10 year old girl from Sweden, they might put you on as an expert. What? what should happen, you know, but the, uh, but so, uh, so God is unwelcome in the boardroom, bedroom, courtroom, classroom, unnecessary to make sense of the world, and plus our culture has made it, what's happened, the result of this is that for many young people, belief in God is unimaginable because their imagination has been dulled, and how did this happen? Here's what I think, and this is why I love that we have this culture where worship is so like we're after God. Like we're not doing worship because we like music, even though we do like music, but I mean, we are worshiping God because he's worthy. You know, because he's worthy and we're giving thanks to him as God and somehow we were created in the image of love and before we think and even before we believe, we love. You know, like, the, you know, um, Descartes, the, the French skeptic, with his famous quote, I think therefore I am, cogito ergo sum. This is like, like becomes the basis of a naturalistic worldview, but we're not just thinking animals. In fact, before you think, you have to believe, you know, that we believe, but before you believe, you have to love. That at our, at our core basis, we are, we are, created to worship, to honor, to give thanks, and to love. It's even Psalm 22. David writes, he said, he said, you know, I learned to trust you at my mother's breast. What is he saying? He's saying that in my initial infant experience, as my mom was nursing me, and, and all that that love was coming from her face, and I perceived it, and I loved her back, I was beginning to become human. And this is what makes us human. And, and be, when we love, then belief is easy. Love believes, love trusts. Love has a, a foundation, a secure foundation of trust. I love being around all these kids who've grown up in Christian homes that were functional. I mean, and this is not, <laughs> oh, Jesus, help me. You know, the, I mean, the same family, one kid's great and one kid's got issues. But, the, uh, but I love it when I'm around 
a, a young person and I just feel like, oh my gosh, this, this young woman or this young man are so secure. They're like, they are secure. Why? Because there's a foundation of love. You know, and, and it's that love energizes faith. So, you know, so, so all of this, how did, how did we turn, how was this turning away? And it, it's, it's because of the, it's the loss of love. But humans were created to love. It's part, I mean, it's the main characteristic of the communion with God. And inside every human being is a longing for happiness. A longing, like we are, uh, we are just absolute fanatics about happiness. We, we will go across the sea for happiness, you know? A love way beyond the, you know, and, and just like, like the, these are the things that capture people's heart. You're really glad I didn't keep singing, I know that, because I can't, that's why. Okay, but so when we, when we you know, come up away from love, how, how do we get back? God has given us three guides. They're inherent in our being. Imagination, which is called to beauty and heroism. That's why young children, please, 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 don't feed them the you know, current popular garbage, even though it's not all garbage for sure, but, but feed them on, on stories of heroism. Feed their imaginations. I mean, it's, and it's very hard to be fed on this stuff if you're occupied with the smartphone that makes you dumb. You know, because, I mean, and, and Twitter and TikTok and all those other things, and I know some of you are really good at, you use it for the kingdom of God, but it just takes up time, and sometimes imagination requires empty space. You know... It requires, a book is better than a movie, you know, because it allows like, it, you know, this process and this engagement with storylines that are heroic and beautiful and, and this longing comes out of us. But we, we long for stuff. I had an experience as a, anyway, I'll, I'll get into that. But reason leads us to truth. And then conscience, I mean, conscience really guides us in this pursuit of what is good. And what is good is what makes us happy, you know? So, so it's like, so we, when we, you know, this, the conscience, reason, and imagination have to be awakened. So this is my goal here. So, uh, you know, imagination hears the song around us. Imagination, I had this uh, encounter, this first one I remember, um, when I, but I was about 12, my family, I'm thankful my parents stayed married. They weren't very happy. They didn't practice any kind of faith. But, you know, I had a home. And my dad, we had five boys, so my dad remodeled the attic into a dormitory. And we all had our little place there. And we'd sleep up there. And uh, one, one night, I think I was about 11, 12 years old, somewhere in that range, and it had been snowing, really big snow. This is Northern California, heavy winter snows. And, uh, and I was, you know, just super happy because it meant, okay, school, you know, school's gonna be closed tomorrow. We're gonna all go play in the snow. It's gonna be amazing. And so I go to bed, you know, and in the middle of the night, I wake up because the clouds had cleared. It was a full moon and there's about 18 to 24 inches of fresh snow and I, and, I, and I get up, it's like this magic moment. You know, I get up and I go, and there was this pretty big window at the end of the 
dormitory, both ends, and, uh, and I'm standing there and there's these cedar trees that are bent over like candles and all the, you know, all the trees, the pine trees branches are like this, the oak trees that had lost their leaves, everything's traced out. And it's so bright because of the full moon. It's, it's almost like daytime, but it's not. And there's a few clouds floating. And in that moment, I, you know, I didn't know the name, I didn't know what was calling me, but I was in awe and wonder. I, I remember that feeling like I would like to live like this forever. You know, that something happens and God just awaken the imaginations. Awaken us, deliver us from the tyranny of social media if it, if it is a grip or an addiction. Deliver us from entertainment that's, that's depressing and degrading and, and just fills our minds with inferior images and deliver us into that place of beauty and imagination. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Weight of Glory. We want something else which, we can, hard, which can hardly be put in words to be united with beauty, the beauty we see, to pass into it and to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it and become part of it. Isn't that profound? And isn't that, I mean, we just had communion. You know, this is, this is the, the glory of seeing creation as sacramental, that, that, that he is in us and we are in him and he's in the Father and, and we pass into this. But we, we have to feed this deliberately and the word of God does it. And, but you, you kind of need space for this to happen. You know, you can't do it like check off your 50 things you're gonna do today. I love getting 50 things done in a day. It's rare and it's amazing. But, but here's a because we're, we're created to long for something the material world cannot provide. We're, and there, and what, what holds us back? What keeps us out of that? And so the, you know, the ancient church, would they spent a lot of time thinking about this because they didn't have television, they didn't have cable, they didn't have cell phones. And so they would think about these things like, what is holding me back from God? And they, they enumerated through, through church tradition these seven deadly sins, you know, and if, maybe if you have a Catholic background, Orthodox background, you've heard of these. Um, but, but they enumerated and, and as categories of things that people easily fall into. What, the first one is pride. The second one is greed or covetousness. There's never enough. The, and by the way, pride, you know, pride stinks. You know, what it, when we're proud, we don't get the grace of God. Uh, greed, covetousness, never enough. Lust, and it's not only talking about sexual lust, it's talking about this, I want it, I want it, I have to have it. You, you know, it, that lust can, uh, there's lust for power, lust for fame, all kinds of things like that. There's envy, which wants what someone else has that doesn't want to work hard and get it, wants to take it from them. Um, gluttony, which we all know about, don't we? You know, most, most cultures have, have had too little food. Gluttony is too much, too much food or drink. Anger, which the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And then the last one is sloth. So I'm gonna talk about sloth, okay? So, I, I, I searched for this image on the internet but couldn't find it, but somewhere in you know, around 2003, um, 
Lee, Lee Rubin is a, an amazing cartoonist and his cartoons are called Rubes. You know, some of you may be fans, but, but there's this one I remember seeing. It, it showed this sloth, you know, hairy, long toes. He's hanging on a branch and he's got his headphones on listening to sloth motivation, <laughs> sloth motivation tapes. And the, and the, 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 the caption is, relax. Take your time. What's the hurry? Life goes on whether you're asleep or not. And the sloth's like, oh, I really like myself. You know, no, I, those, those are my words. But, but anyway, that's not the kind of sloth we're talking about. The kind of sloth we're talking about, spiritual sloth, is a neglect of the, the duties of love. You know, it's, a, it's the... Um, you know, it's, it's not caring about the main thing being the main thing. And so it could, we think of sloth as laziness, and we say, well, the world might be a better place if people would chill out, you know, and slow down. And, but, but, it's, but laziness, and now workaholism is like part of sloth. And that might sound like, well, how could that be? Well, you know, if all you, you know, like you can work, 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 and work can be an escape from working on relationships and love. Yes? <laughs> oh, everybody's getting elbowed here, you know, like, hey, that's uh, <laughs> what I told you, you didn't need that extra job. You know, but, but there's something about, like, we're created to do, so work is good. But work that, that at the expense of righteousness isn't good, and righteousness is maintaining those relationships, and so, so there, there's a, um, it's the, op, sloth is the opposite of diligence, and diligence, it, you know, it has this idea of energy, energetic work produced out of something better, like a, an obligation or duty, and so it, our English word diligence comes from the the Latin verb diligere. And diligere, if you, if you have a little translate app on your phone, you can check this out. You can fact check me right now. But you just put in diligere in Latin and the translation is love. And, it, and in, you know, there's a lot of words. There's, uh, there's multiple terms that can be translated love in Latin. There's caritas, which gets translated like, that's like agape love, charity. There's, there's amor, amore, which gets translated into Italian as amore. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. But this is, this is diligere is, is this obligation we have of love. And of all the people I know, I was thinking about who do I know who is so zealous in love? And I know many. I'm so blessed by many, you know, many, many, many. But Heidi Baker stands out to me. I have been with her when everyone is so exhausted. And Heidi's like, and, and now we've, you know, we've done all these things. We just went on a trip. We got off the boat. We unpacked. We go to the house. We're eating dinner. And says, now we're going to drive out into the bush for three hours. And we're going to have a meeting at a village that's never heard the gospel, they're gonna throw stones at us and then we're, we're gonna tell them how great Jesus is and then God will heal some person, like a little deaf girl, a lame man. I mean, I've seen it happen, blind man. And, and on the basis of that, the whole village will meet Jesus and we're gonna 
and we're gonna spend the night and then we're gonna start a church the next morning. The village chiefs will become the pastors. We're gonna start a school and we're gonna drill a well. We'll come back and drill a well. All, and then, then you drive back for four hours and you think like, okay, now can we have a day off? Nope, hey, here's what we're gonna do. I don't want you sitting around. Now, most people think like, could we just have a little break? You know, I don't have as much energy of love as you do. But I'm telling you, this is diligence. It's the opposite of sloth. And uh, sloth, here's some other definition. Sloth is a failure to recognize our inherent longing for God. And, and this is, it's kind of modern, it's because entertainment and the continual blur of activities kind of mute that out. The, you know, that universal thirst for God which is recognized across cultures and throughout history has been muted in our days. So we have young people that grow up, they have no hunger for God. It's like, who needs God? I have World of Warcraft. You know, I mean, not, and I'm not picking on any of these things. I'm just saying this. And, and then we have, we, so people feel the longing, but they can't recognize it. And you can look for it in the wrong places. You know, like Vas, Vasco da Gama. The, the Spanish conquistador, spent his lifetime looking for the fountain of youth. Like he, he, spent, he, he thought, if I can find this fountain of youth, I can live forever. He just needed to find Jesus, you know? He just needed to find, find it's like, God, but it's like, so, I, and I, you know, maybe I'll meet Bosco, to, I'm in heaven, I'll have to apologize for mischaracterizing him, but anyway. But you know, we have all this cultural substitution for God. We have victim culture, which blames unhappiness and, and, uh, and disillusionment on other people. You know, instead of counting it all joy and saying, God, thank you, I have the privilege to suffer for your name. I wanna suffer like a Christian. I'm gonna count it all joy. I'm gonna let patience have its perfect work. I'm gonna be transformed so that at the end of the process, I'll be perfect and entire and lacking nothing. And I'm gonna ask you for wisdom so I know what to do in the meantime. You know, it's just like we've got these substitutions and they're false narratives. Anyway, it, but so what does scripture say? I mean, here's, <laughs> this is, I want to read this. Sloth's main target is our love for God. That's what sloth, sloth wants to wipe out the expression of your love for God. And the reality is, in our culture, the demands of love, love calls for personal transformation. It calls us to go from selfish to selfless. It's difficult, and, it, and people find it unappealing. Like, no, I'm good. I got, you know... I got my boat, I got my cooler, I got my case of beer, and the bass are biting, and I'm good, I don't need anything. I mean, it's like, but it's because this call for that which is truly beautiful has been muted by all the things going on in our life. So the, uh, and it's a little bit like, now I've never watched any of those, whatever they're called, the Living Dead series of movies. Or, uh, but maybe when I was a kid, I saw a show with zombies in it. But I know this about zombies. Zombies look like they're alive, but they're not alive. And so there's something about our culture has become zombie-like that we celebrate things that are worthless and we, 
we attack things that are of eternal value. And so the th deal with zombies, I know this much, if a zombie bites you, you turn into a zombie. Now, zombies have no appetite for God. They just have an appetite for f human flesh. And so, you know, at the zombie bites the, the, the living human and the living human joins them as a zombie. I remember, anyway, <laughs> crazy movies from my childhood. But, but then here's the thing about zombies. They tend to run around in packs, like they're whole herds, you know, like they're, they, they go away in the daytime, then they come back in the dark, and they're, and they're roaming around looking for a human to bite. And it, isn't that what happens when we live for the flesh instead of for the spirit? You know, like it's just like God deliver us from zombie contagion and fill us with the diligence of love. Why don't you stand up? I, I want to finish on, on with two verses very wonderful verses, Colossians 4, 5 from the New International Version. It says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. That we want, to, we want it, people when they encounter us that they experience the love of God, but they also experience the wisdom of God. So we can love people we don't agree with. That's the true meaning of tolerance. You know, the, uh, the Colossians 4, 5, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And I just love this. I love that God opens doors and gives us opportunities. I wanna pray for you that God, there will be a grace on your life and it'll be part of your diligence of love that to make the most of every opportunity. At last week, Abby Abelness told me this amazing opportunity she had, I mean, it was a few weeks ago, but of, of praying for the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania who didn't necessarily like Bible-carrying Christians and this kind of thing. She had a word from the Lord for him. It totally changed his heart. And he broke protocol when she was gonna pray to open the Senate. He says, I wanna introduce this person. And so this is making the most of every opportunity. And then here's another one. Romans 12.10. This is the ESV, which I'm usually preaching out of. ESV 12.10. Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then this, this one's a zinger. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's like godly competition. You know, I just wonder, one day at the Bama seat of Christ, will there be an award for the one <laughs> who outdid everyone else in showing honor? Not, not in, a, in a bad way, but in a holy way. But then I love verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Isn't that great? You know, I mean, we want, I'll tell you what, sloth can invade marriages, sloth can invade businesses, sloth can invade communities and teams, and once sloth is at work, the, the eternal, the glory, the beauty just kind of fades away. So I want you to lift your hands. I wanna pray for you, and I wanna invite people, if you wanna come forward, there's healing here, there's deliverance, there's salvation here. All, 
If you came here saying, I hope I have an encounter with God and you haven't had it yet, I invite you to come forward so that we can pray with you and you will have an encounter with his real presence. But I just wanna pray for all of you. Father, I just pray that there would be a supernatural grace on us, that we would do our best to, to make the most of every opportunity, every Kairos encounter, every Holy Spirit encounter, every way we can help, every way we can serve, every way we can share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that there would be this, that opportunities would open up and we would recognize it and it would be part of our life of holy wonder and love. Thank you, Father, and I just pray, I pray, God, that you would place it in our hearts at just a little personal desire to be zealous in love in every way and outdo one another in honor. God, that, this, that the honor between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would become the honor in which we live our lives and in which we interact with our families, with our employees, with our employers, with our bosses and subordinates, with our, with our customers and our clients, God, that we would bring Jesus everywhere. In his name I pray, amen, amen, amen.